anyone out there who's looking to build something, start with one niche and go from there. You don't have to solve all of the world's problems overnight, but if you can just start solving it for one and then expanding from there, it provides a pretty clear path to building and moving forward. Welcome in to Studying Success. On this podcast, I interview entrepreneurs, investors, and CEOs who reveal their personal stories and advice for high school and college students on how to become successful in the business world. In this episode, we are joined by Jason Burchard, who is the CEO and co-founder at a company called RootNote. RootNote provides content creators such as YouTubers, musicians, Twitch streamers, podcasters, etc. with a single platform that houses all of their relevant data like follower count, streams, plays, etc. so that these content creators can make better informed decisions on which form of content to release. In this podcast, Jason explains his ideation process with RootNote, the implications of raising capital and how they can be potentially stressful, and how social media is changing how businesses market to their consumers. Here's the interview. Jason, it's so good to have you on the show. How are you doing today? Hey, Will. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Thank you. How about yourself? I'm doing great. I'm super happy now that I'm talking to you. Where are you in the world right now? So we're based in Nashville, Tennessee. So I'm currently there, but I do a decent amount of traveling. I still can't believe that you're doing this over your spring break. So good for you. Thank you. Thank you. So let's get right into it. Jason, who are you? What is your title? And what is RootNote? My name is Jason Burchard. I'm the CEO and co-founder of a company called RootNote, where we're building a collaborative business intelligence platform for creative businesses. If you think about it, there are hundreds of millions of entrepreneurs right now who are building their businesses around content. This includes everyone from music creators to YouTubers, podcasters, live streamers, digital influencers, and now thanks to changes in NIL, even athletes. So we're helping anyone who's looking to build their brand around digital content track all of their data and platform. So while there are hundreds of millions of creators who are building these types of businesses, it's incredibly complex and there's a huge need in the market for a business intelligence platform that's built specifically for these types of, of entrepreneurs. So RootNote effectively enables creative businesses and the teams that are operating with them to track and analyze data from literally anywhere, share it with anyone, and then use that information to build better businesses. We've been building for the past couple of years and we're getting ready to launch what we're calling the beta version of the platform. What are examples of the data types that your software allows these creators to use? Digital creators are building some of the most complex businesses in the world around dozens of different platforms and millions of data points. And these data points include data from social media platforms like Meta, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and many, many others. Includes consumption or streaming data from platforms like Spotify for artists, Spotify for podcasters, YouTube or Twitch, and many, many others. And then it includes revenue data from all of the different potential sources that a digital content creator can generate income. So that includes everything from their distribution platforms to their e-commerce platforms, Shopify to launching their own businesses that are all built and and branded around their content. If you could define a target customer, like the ideal customer, who would that be? We've been building with some of the largest creative teams in the world and the ideal customer profile of the individual company that we're working with right now generally works with multiple individual creators. So multiple musicians, influencers, even athletes, they have robust teams. So what we're seeing is that teams are getting larger and larger because the challenges of building a creative business are becoming more and more cumbersome. These companies have anywhere between two to a few dozen team members across marketing, finance, operations 
operations, content creation, day-to-day management, and they're overseeing a couple to dozens of different individual musicians, athletes, podcasters, media personalities, and brands. And as I mentioned, kind of the client base for this includes everything from creator management companies to music labels, talent agencies, booking agencies, even now to sports teams. How can one use data to figure out how to build a better business and how to create better content? So the first part of utilizing or leveraging your data to build a better business is one, just to get it on the same place. And the challenge right now is that data is incredibly siloed. So if you want to understand what pieces of content are performing better than others or where your best engagement rates are or what emails generate the largest open rate, you have to go in and you have to log into the individual backends of all of these different products, platforms, and services. And it's incredibly time consuming. So the first thing that you can do is start by just building a picture and understanding of kind of what your universe looks like. What does your business look like? Who is your distribution partner? So I'll throw the question back at you. Who are you currently using to distribute your podcast? I'm using a company called Buzzsprout, which shoots out the podcast to all these different platforms. Exactly. So Buzzsprout shoots out the podcast, all these different platforms. You've obviously got Facebook channel, Instagram. We were talking before the show about how you're going to start repurposing content for YouTube and for TikTok. And then, you know, Buzzsprout is obviously sending your podcast out to all of the different podcast uh, consumption platforms. So as a listener, your audience is listening to this podcast on Spotify, on Apple, other different places. And then ultimately, the goal for you and other creative businesses are going to be to generate a revenue stream by starting to monetize your audience. And that's going to be through either brand partnerships. Uh, You're going to build a big enough audience where you can take this data and you can go start talking to brands and say, hey, who's one of your favorite companies in Austin? Ooh, that's a good question. Uh, I'll I'll say, hey, Thundercloud subs, just because I remember it from my days. (laughs) That's a good uh, one. Okay, so say, hey, Thundercloud, like I've got this amazing audience. I know that they happen to love sandwiches and I think you would be a great sponsor for my podcast. And you take this information, this data, and you go to them and you use it to kind of pitch yourself, your brand. So, you know, partners are one. The other that you kind of alluded to was how do you use this data to make better content decisions? It's kind of a fine line. And we don't believe that you should be using this data to necessarily influence the content that you create. Ultimately, as a brand, you know, you're going to have to kind of talk with your audience and you're going to have a good pulse of who you are and what your identity is. But you're going to have to figure out how to chop that content up, where it performs best, what type of content performs best. Short form video is huge right now. Obviously, you can repurpose that across TikTok and Instagram Reels, YouTube Shorts. So it's really understanding kind of where your audience is and how to target them. And then one of the things I like to think a lot about is what we call first party to third party data ratio. So it's like of all of your audience, right, of your total following, how much do you actually know about that audience and who can you actually communicate with? Let's say you've got an aggregate, a total audience of 20,000 people that you know are following you across all of your different platforms. You know, they're listening to you on different podcast outlets. And then the question is, uh, how much first party data do you actually have across that audience? Whose email address do you have? Whose phone number do you have? You know, if you decided to launch, uh, let's say Patreon to start, you know, maybe some behind the scenes content or some additional kind of things that you were going to offer to them, like who could you actually reach out to an email or text and who are those kind of high digital candidates? And then, you know, lastly, I mentioned internally how your team can use it to inform content decisions and strategy. Obviously, you've got brand partners and sponsors, but now even like in the world of digital content, content, we're seeing a whole influx of investors from outside who are interested in getting in the space, new types of lenders, new types of investors, and they all need this data to kind of help you grow your business. You know, there's, there are products called like merchant cash advances where 
you could go get an advance on your YouTube revenue. Or there's a new class of investors that we're seeing that are coming in to invest directly into content creators themselves. So it's a really, really exciting time to be building your business around content and it's getting more complex by the day. I think this whole new thing with TikTok and Instagram Reels and Facebook just released a kind of short video segment and it's completely revolutionizing how we think about marketing. And could you generally say how this is changing how we normally think think about business and how companies are changing and like, how is this changing business as we know it? I think what's really interesting is if you just kind of look at the market and you'll notice that companies are building full on brands around their content. They're launching YouTube channels and blogs and they're launching podcasts, right? All of these companies are doing these things around content because they recognize, and this has been trending for years, but especially over the pandemic, consumers are consuming an incredible amount of content. Our attention spans are getting shorter, which is the reason why short form and reels and it's why that kind of current format is so popular and what we're seeing is that as i mentioned a content creator used to be kind of a digital influencer well now people are building brands around their content because they're a gamer or they're a chef and the format of your content can really be anything including a startup us as a startup we actually create a ton of original content because that's the best way for people to kind of understand who our brand is and then when, when you kind of ask about you know what this means for the world of alternative finance and these different kind of companies emerging. But I think what we're seeing is that we'll call them institutional partners, investors, companies. They're identifying that individuals themselves have the power to build really powerful brands around content, especially once they've built an audience. I think Mr. Beast is probably the most prominent example of that with launching festivals and everything else. You know, Once you have that audience that you've developed around your content, you can pretty much productize anything. Obviously, it's got to be on brand. But that being said, it's about capturing the attention, building the community, the audience, and then figuring out how you can best serve them through different products. So you said RootNote is about to launch its beta stage of the software. Could you kind of orient us? What stage is RootNote in, in terms of how long ago was it founded and stuff like that? We officially incorporated back in May of 2020, built what we call our MVP, threw something together. We wanted to see if we could get users to onboard. We did. We started more with individual content creators. Doing that, we realized that to kind of launch the first, we'll call it like monetized version of the platform, we would need to make it more robust and start building it out for teams. One of the key findings we had in the early days was that the whole content industry is incredibly collaborative. Well, the creators, they do everything in teams. So effectively, we'd have to figure out how to build a product that enabled teams to share data, which is why we call it collaborative analytics. So that was kind of kicked off what we call our alpha stage. So just building quietly behind the scenes with a small number of large teams. And what the beta phase means is that we're effectively ready to start expanding with a completely kind of new and scalable version of the product we're really excited about. Our initial use case for building the platform was limited to one creative vertical, so largely music creators. And what we learned while we were building over the course of the pandemic was that the market was becoming so complex and so fragmented that we'd have to build a data model that would enable us to effectively support any type of creator platform or data. So it's been a long journey to get here, but we've been learning an incredible amount along the way and are really excited about opening the product up to a whole new cohort of customers. So really quickly before we move on, could you quickly define for us what an MVP is and why it's important? 
An MVP stands for minimum viable product, and it's effectively the way for you to get out and quickly test your idea. The thing that's really cool about building companies today is there are a lot of products and software out there that enable you to build this minimum viable product using like low or no code solutions. For us, one of the first things that I did, this was even a little bit pre-tech MVP. I just built an Excel model because that was my background to kind of start tracking all of this different data and built out some custom dashboards in Excel and started showing it to different management teams and artists to kind of get their thoughts and feedback. Because what you want to do is you want to start talking to your prospective customers as early as possible. And the MVP or the minimum vial product gives you an opportunity to take your idea and put it into something that somebody can kind of see and, and interact with. And it gives you a really quick mechanism to start getting customer feedback, which is going to be the most important thing as you're building out your product and company. After the initial Excel model, how did you build the actual product? It was interesting. We were in this position where we knew we were onto something. We didn't know exactly how big it could become or what exactly how big the market would initially be. But we knew that we were onto this initial idea. And we also knew that uh, neither myself nor my brother had backgrounds in software development. So we started talking to, well, really, we went down two different routes. One, we started exploring how much it would potentially cost to have what's called a dev shop or a development shop build the product. So development shops are existing companies of engineers that work on a lot of contract or freelance projects, great companies, generally speaking, though, um, it can be expensive, especially if you are unsure exactly what the product is going to look like, <laughs> especially in those you know early MVP days. Or the other route was that we could convince somebody who had the technical skills to come on and help us build that early product. And whenever you're a startup, you kind of have two different ways to pay people to join the team. If you do have funding or have raised money, obviously, you can pay them through cash. And then the other way that you can compensate early kind of team members and employees is through equity. So we didn't have a ton of cash on hand at the time and ultimately decided to pay our kind of initial MVP developer by giving them equity in the company that invested while we were building. So that's how we got off the ground and it's been a combination of things since then. We've changed staff and we've grown and we're really happy about where we are today, but it's been a journey of different people and collaborators working with us to get to the product to its current state. Where did the idea for RootNote come from? My brother and co-founder is actually a digital content creator. He's multi-hyphenate, started as a music journalist, live streams on Twitch four times a week, has a band, YouTube channel. He's a writer, journalist. He's very much who we want to solve problems for. And then before RootNote, what I did was I effectively, with Jeremy, my brother and co-founder, we launched one of the first creator-focused equity investment funds. So basically, we would help form businesses around content creators and invest money into their business in exchange for equity. This model has been practiced for decades in the startup world, not so much in the digital content and creator world. So we built a model around that, made a few investments, and then kind of encountered this huge challenge with data. So my background is in spreadsheets and PowerPoint. I worked in social impact venture capital and consulting. And basically, I was talking to all of these different creators, music artists in this case, and their management teams and labels and everyone kind of working involved trying to access data so that we could understand how the creators were doing from a business perspective. It was impossible to get all of the information easily and quickly. 
quickly. And then we were also helping the artists that we had invested into just like look at data, think about data and realize quickly that there was a huge challenge to be solved here. And that's kind of how we got our start in the creator data space. You were investing in creators similar to what VCs do in businesses. And then you saw this problem, you came up with this idea, and then you created this Excel sheet and you expanded to more creators. What was the next step in that process? What was the next challenge that you had to solve? As we started building and expanding to different creators, the next challenge that we encountered was really a technical one. And we had to figure out, okay, we've demonstrated that this is a problem. We've demonstrated that people are willing to pay to solve this problem. Can we scale what we've built? And ultimately, what we discussed as a team and what we realized is that we'd have to rebuild our entire product and platform and able to encompass all of the learnings that we had from kind of the previous work. So really, the next step was taking what we've done in this MVP stage and then figuring out how we could actually scale this into a much larger and viable business business. And that obviously comes with a whole new set of challenges. So effectively, once we made that decision, we started rebuilding the platform and product, continuing to work with our customers, always getting feedback, understanding what types of features and functionality we would need to be building into the new version of the platform, and then getting ready to go to market with that. How did you reach your first customers and what was your pitch to them? Our first customers, they were people that we knew. So what I would recommend is if you're interested in solving a problem, I would start with something that that you know really well because then you can actually go in if you're somewhat of a domain expert if you really know the space that you want to build for then you've got a natural network and relationships there already and that was critical for us because especially the creative industry is incredibly relational and there's no way that we'd be where we are today if we hadn't had the guidance and help of people that we met years and years ago while we were building the initial investment model so yeah what i would say is definitely start with something that you know, and then make sure that you are talking and telling people what you need and are looking for example, whenever we were looking for our first engineering hire, we started asking people, hey, we're looking for a full stack engineer who'd be interested in doing this. So if you're trying to solve a problem in a space that you're not as familiar with, I'd start by asking people in your network if they know anyone in that space that would be willing to provide some early feedback. Did you ever think about raising capital and did you ever make the decision to try to raise capital? So we have raised a small amount of capital so far what we call kind of like a angel and pre-seed round so basically whenever you raise capital there are different people that you can raise money from angel investors are typically going to be friends your family strategic angel investors business leaders in the community who've built something and want to kind of help make investments into the you know next generation of entrepreneurs who are growing up in that ecosystem then you've got the next round which are kind of pre-seed investors so these are still going to be very early stage investors and can be a combination of friends and family and angels as well. And then once you move on to the seed round, which is what we're actually preparing to do, you start talking to more what you call like an institutional partner. So these are venture capital funds. These are investors who make their living by investing money. So they have their investors who invest into them and they say, hey, we're going to go out. We're going to find a bunch of really great startups to invest into. And we're going to make you money based on the deals that we can get into. It opens up kind of a whole new type of investor. So and the question is to, you know, why did we decide to do that? It's one of those things where the alternative to raising outside capital is what's commonly referred to as bootstrapping in the startup world, where basically you go 
out and you do everything that you can. You try and get to revenue as fast as you can and you effectively use a combination of, you know, your own savings and, you know, revenue from the business that you generate to kind of get the product out there and, and go and then grow and continue to grow off the revenue that the company is making. It's a really viable business model too. The challenge that we had was to get the product off the ground and especially where we're at right now. We need a team that's going to be able to help us come in and scale and build even faster. So for us, the reason that we've made the decision to go out and raise a seed round is because we need to scale product development. And we're also at a point right now where we've demonstrated that there is a demand for this product and that there is a large market for what we're doing. Because one of the other things that you need to consider when you're making the decision to raise capital is whether or not someone will see it as an investable idea. Because plenty of people build incredibly successful businesses without ever raising money. And as an entrepreneur, what you have to think about is, okay, if I'm pitching this idea to an investor, can they see a path to this becoming a billion dollar business? Can they make 100X their initial investment? As you go throughout the fundraising cycles of building a startup, if you do go down that route, the later on you raise money as a company, the more traction and proof that you have to have in order to raise that capital and the less risk will be associated with that investment. So the investors will expect lower returns, et cetera, et cetera. But basically, if you're thinking about starting a business, you can do it one of two ways. It can be hard to find access to capital. So sometimes that's not always an option. And regardless if whether or not you plan on raising money or not, it's really important to start networking and meeting people early on in your journey because those are the ones who are going to help you build your relationships over time. You mentioned early on that you largely reached out to mainly just friends who could be potential customers and people that you had met in the past. So how do you reach and meet your customers today? We do a combination of things. One of the things that's been incredibly helpful and successful for us is we create a ton of our own content. So we like to write about the challenges that our users are facing. Our co-founder, Jeremy's done a really great job of building out our content strategy and presence. And so it's led to some really cool organic traction and growth being featured in different types of publications. So that's one way to create organic inbound. The other way that we're, because we're in beta, we haven't truly activated this yet, but another way that people look at product discovery is how you can create product-led growth by the sheer nature of using your product. It encourages other users to sign up. And we're really excited about the collaborative nature of what we're building called a collaborative analytics platform, enabling the product that you're building to be shared with others very easily and making it very accessible. So those are kind of the ways that we're thinking about it. As far as some of the larger enterprise type customers that we're talking to, getting warm introductions or referrals from trusted sources is the best way to go. As I'm sure you know, people's attention spans are a lot shorter than they used to be and inboxes are fuller than they've ever been. So getting somebody who can kind of provide that warm introduction or seal of approval on why it's worth having a conversation has been incredibly beneficial for us. We joined a incubator that was actually run by one of our clients early on and it's been incredibly helpful for us because you know if you can get a customer making introductions on your behalf to other potential customers then there's that stamp of approval which will help you get your foot in the door when you are selling to customers what do you think is the most important thing to keep in mind 
I've been thinking a lot about the concept of solution selling versus just like general sales. And I think at the end of the day, one of the most important things that you can remember whenever you're selling to a, a customer or talking with them is, is one, that it's a conversation. And two, that the more value that you can demonstrate that you can provide, the better the conversation will go. So, you know, knowing the ins and outs of your customer's business, being able to go in and not only kind of ask questions, but hopefully teach them something new and share something new with them that you've covered based on other conversations, obviously not disclosing anything that, um, you know, is proprietary, but really taking the knowledge that you've learned over time and talking with so many different people and using that to help them understand how you can help them with their businesses and their unique challenges. Because I think one of the things with larger companies is being able to identify that, you know, there is a common set of problems. One, every organization and institution is unique. And two, there is a common set of problems that they're facing and figuring out how the solution that you've developed and help them solve those problems that are both common, but also unique to their business is a really great way. And also remembering that it's a conversation and that there is going to be back and forth. And it's also a relationship and it takes time to develop. What has been the biggest challenge that your business has faced? Going back to the fundraising question about whether or not you want to raise or not raise, I think just understanding like the implications of what happens if you do raise money too. So for context, we're getting ready to raise a seed round. And as soon as you take institutional capital, you take someone else's money, you're kind of starting that shot clock because you say you're going to accomplish a certain number of benchmarks and milestones between this fund, this raise, this round, and the next one. And so you know, making sure that you are in a place as a business to go out and execute on what you say you're going to execute on is really important. Awesome. Well, Jason, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was great. Yeah, Will, thanks so much for having me. As always, thank you for listening, and please make sure you follow Studying Success to get notified when new podcasts come out. Also, please leave a review and send the podcast to your friends and family to show them what you learned. It would greatly help the show. I'm Will Burkhart, and you've been listening to Studying Success. 